Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast. I'm John McMahon. And today my special guest is Tammy Sexton, who is the Chief Revenue Officer at Skyflow. Tammy started her career in sales at PTC, and then she moved to EMC, where she was for 11 years and grew to become a regional director. After EMC, Tammy moved to 1E, where she was the vice president of the West. After 1E, Tammy moved to Sumo Logic as a regional sales director before moving to Logic Hub as the vice president of sales. Then... Tammy went to PagerDuty, where she was the director of enterprise sales. And after PagerDuty, Tammy moved to launch Darkly as the VP of the Americas and Asia Pacific. Today, we find Tammy as the CRO of Skyflow. Welcome, Tammy Sexton. Hey, it's good to see you again. Thank you, John McMahon. It's good to see you again, too. <laughs> How are you? Oh, busy, fantastic. Love and life. How about you? The same, the same, but it's better than the alternative of not being busy. Yes. I'd I'd much prefer this. So Tammy, you're a CRO at Skyflow, new opportunity for you. Why don't you um, talk to us a little bit about what Skyflow does and how it helps customers? Sure. Uh, So Skyflow is the world's first commercially available data vault as a service. So uh, the concept of a data vault isn't a new concept. A lot of companies with deep pocketbooks have had uh, data data privacy vaults in the past. Um, the easiest way for me to explain it is if you use Apple iPay to go to like Chipotle to pay for your Dorito, when you do that, you're not actually giving Chipotle whatever credit card, if that's your preferred method, um, is behind your Apple iPay. You're giving them a one-time generated passcode that allows that vendor to charge your iPay. Your credit card is in the Apple data privacy vault. So Apple's had it for years. Netflix has had it for years. But Skyflow is the first company to actually make a commercially available product in the market. So what if I'm just using another credit card on some online store, I'm not as protected as I am with what you just talked about with Apple Pay? Correct. Every vendor out there has a different way to protect data. There's thousands, you know, you've, if you look at security products and you look at companies like Optiv and how many different plethora of products they can sell you, there's a lot of ways to protect data. Um, There are very few ways that make it as foolproof. Nothing is Nothing is 100% secure in the world, but there are very few other technologies that can make it as hard for people, bad guys, to get your data than storing it in a data vault. It's the same reason why you use a vault at a bank, for example, as opposed to keeping all your, your cash in your in your mattress at home. And what if I use Apple Pay in a store? Is that in the store, like a brick and mortar? Is that the same as using it online? Yep. And, and then you mentioned Netflix. Why do they have it? Do They're one of your customers, so then that's how they... They do it. 
versus maybe some other companies? Yeah, Netflix actually had a data privacy vault before we became a customer, a company. There is a guy there, Jatinder, I forgot his last name, but he he was the one that created the data privacy vault, which took all of their scattered PII and PCI data and put it locked down in a vault and replaced every place it used to be with the same token pointing to the vault. Um, And so when he found out that we were a commercially available product, he immediately joined our advisory board uh, and has been active with Skyflow ever since. So how do I know if a company I'm doing business with, you know, as a consumer, how do I know if they have Skyflow and my data is being protected in a data vault? Well, there isn't a lot of companies that actually advertise that they have a data privacy vault, primarily because I'm not sure the end user, like the consumer, would understand that concept. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are companies that you can look for that are like PCI certified. If it's health data, you know, you can have HIPAA. Um, so there's a lot of ways to try to determine from the outside if a company is handling your data safely. Um, but there isn't a lot of ways to handle what, what the definition of handling my data safely really is. Yeah. Some we're going to have a Skyflow certification program. That, should- that's what I was wondering. That's kind of where I was going. I didn't know if you had that already. Another question I have is if I'm storing all the data in Skyflow, does that help me from a compliance perspective for P- PII? Yep, absolutely. So we're PII, uh, we're HIPAA certified. P- we can handle like PHI, we can sign uh, BAAs. Um, we are PCI certified. So like as a company, if I've got credit card data and I put the data in a Skyflow data vault, approximately 70 to 80% of the questions that are asked for PCI certification, you can just refer to Skyflow's PCI certification to answer this question. There are still some things that a company will have to do. For example, um, you still have to rotate your passwords for your employees every 60 days. You still have to do background checks. But as it pertains to protecting the the, the PCI and PII data, that will be checked off of the list via the Skyflow certification. Mm, Awesome. So So when you think about selling to revenue, profitability, risk, uh, I think maybe this is rhetorical, but which of these does Skyflow most most affect? You know, it obviously risk is a huge one, but what I'm also finding, and one of the reasons I joined Skyflow is like companies, there's, there are companies out there that if you go to their website, you can tell it's probably a data vault. Um, And that privacy posture now, like people have their privacy statements online. Um, So to actually brag about someday being Skyflow certified is going to actually affect revenue as well. Companies, are, customers are going to be more likely to give you your their data, their personal data, if they know. And, you know, breaches, it's it's not just about the money when you have a data breach. It's about the the brand deterioration, like MGM, you know, people. I just was in Vegas this weekend for the Vikings Raiders game, and I signed up for the MGM app. And the first thing I thought of is, well, you just had a breach. Like, and we're talking to them, by the way, so it's fine. But, like... It's so the first thing out of my mouth when I found out I have to put I have to put in my credit card, I have to put in my private information, and what are they going to do with it? So now it's becoming something that if you handle it the right way, it can be um, a revenue builder as well. And a profitability. If you're not making revenue, you're not making you're not making profit. So not that right. Funny how they all go hand in hand, right? Yeah. So Tammy, you've climbed the ranks of sales leadership. You have a great track record of success. 
let's share some of the lessons that you learned along the way. So let's, can you go back and think about, you know, moving from an account executive to first line manager? It's important for the audience to understand, like, you know, when, if they go from AE to first line manager, what's, what's the biggest part of that transition? What's the biggest thing they have to learn? Yeah, well, I was an AE at, at Parametric PTC when you were there, John. So um, became a first line manager at EMC. I think the biggest thing with that role is like, and it's something that I tell my managers as I promote them, this is probably a mistake that you're going to make. So I need, to pr- I need to plant it in your brain right now. And then when I see that happening, I'm going to ask you to think about like how not to make that happen. And the number one thing I see is playing super rep. Because people get promoted because they're good, right? And then you think, well, I'm going to make everybody sell exactly the way I do. But you know what makes your superpower may not be the same as mine. It doesn't mean that we both can't get deals done. And managers need need to recognize when they're becoming super rep and when they're doing their AE's job for them, as, as opposed to coaching them and allowing them to I'm not saying that you want to always let your kid drive a bike without a helmet, but sometimes letting them just fall off once is not a bad thing either. Yeah. Well, that that happens where there's two things there. One is where you believe that all the reps are the same as you. So it's cookie cutter. And you made that point. And the second one is you're going to be the super rep because you're going to prove to them that you earned this promotion. And it's really hard if you get promoted from the same group that, you know, like let's say there were seven people in the region and you were one of seven. Now you get promoted to be the manager of that region. Now I've seen that's where it really happens, where they try to be super rep. I'm going to prove to you why I was a great salesperson and I'm still a great salesperson. That's why I'm the manager now, but they're not really managing to your point. Right, exactly. And if those leaders go on calls with their AEs and their job, they feel like their job is to show the AE that they can prove their value or how to sell it. it it's not going to actually accomplish that. In fact, that leader, I mean, and I've, I've, I've probably promoted 20 people in a management roles, first line management roles. And I think out of the 20, 19 of them showed the super rep. And it's really then at that point, if you, if, if you plant the seed, like this is what I see new managers doing, that's a mistake. And then you kind of, I shouldn't say catch them, but you can play gong or chorus snippets back to them that said, hey, what do you think about that? Like, how would you feel if you were an AE and your manager like butted it on that, on that question and asked it? Or, um, and then, so the, the, I think the biggest thing is being able to point it out and for them to be thinking about that behavior. Because if you point it out beforehand and then you point it out again, by the time, the third or fourth time you're pointing it out, it actually will be something that they recognize that they have to change. And I think the biggest thing I learned about coaching other people is telling them what to do is never really effective. Asking them questions so that they figure out that they could be doing something differently themselves. That's when you're going to actually have a change that's going to be a lasting change in their behavior, which is what you want. Yeah. Telling people stuff or yelling at them doesn't isn't nowhere near as powerful as asking questions. Yep. But I think one of the other points on the super rep part is especially when they're you know, they're cutting the rep off in front of the customer and doing things like that is you're the most important person at the account is the rep and you're, you're disrespecting the rep in front of the, in front of the customer. You're not giving any power to the uh, yep. you know, AE. So uh, you are really taking all their power away right in front of the customer, which is a really a bad thing. Yeah. It's um, 
you know, you want to leave the call with like an executive saying you're in good hands with XYC AE or whatever um, and making that AE. And then a lot, I've seen a lot of new managers, like when the deal gets juicy and it's time to negotiate, that's when they kind of come in and take over. And for the AEs, that's the fun part of the deal. Like taking that away from them makes them not want to be on your team anymore. So if you think about the bigger issue you have as a leader is to be able to empower and scale your, your organization, taking that fun part away from them is not really going to help you with your long-term goals. Um, and if you do it the right way, AEs can definitely be coached to make sure that, you know, you don't want to ever sacrifice a deal either, but just be cognizant of that as a new leader, I think was a big, it was a mistake I made. It was a mistake I see almost every new manager make at that first level up. It's a classic mistake. Yeah. How about when you moved from first line manager, now you're second line manager, you're managing managers. Oh, the first thing I had to learn was to empower my manager the same way you empower an AE when you become an AE to a manager. You don't want them to all manage like you. They don't have to, not everyone has to lead exactly the way you lead. Not everyone has to coach exactly the way you coach. Um, and so that was the hardest thing to be cognizant of the fact that there is a manager between me and the first line AEs and to be, and to make that manager and to have an environment where that manager feels like they can scale, that they are a leader, showing them that respect. Um, what I found as well is like, I found situations where I thought a candidate was amazing and how a candidate goes from like a first line level manager to then I interview. If the first line manager level, if the first line manager doesn't, isn't crazy about the candidate, don't put me in front of the candidate. Because if that first line manager doesn't want to hire that candidate, it doesn't matter how good I think the candidate is. I'm setting someone up for failure by putting them under a manager that doesn't want them on their team. Right. Um, alternatively, if the manager is really excited about the candidate, you know, I lean in, especially for like that first hire. Um, but as time goes on, if that manager continues to hire people that maybe I don't agree with, it's a little bit of a different conversation. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's where some coaching needs to come in from the second line manager, especially on recruiting, because that first line manager, in most cases, they've just been promoted. They've never recruited in their lives, right? So coaching them on, you know, how to find the strengths and weaknesses of someone and the characteristics of someone in the interview is just so important. And that's really where I think second line manager can help. Yes. And I think just talking about the hiring profile, I think, again, everybody wants to hire people that are just like them. Mm. It's not mm. what you necessarily want. What is our hiring profile? And how do we come up with five or 10 questions that you ask every candidate, no matter what? And what are you looking for? A lot of, I think with interviewing, what I've learned is candidates, a lot of times candidates are giving you the answer that they think you want to hear. So if you can come up with some questions where you've kind of gotten a little bit of a hidden agenda, it can really identify who you're talking to. So I always ask a question, for example, like, tell me about the deal you won, like that everyone's got the deal they're most proud of. And most of the AEs will lean in and they'll smile and their voice will go up and active. And what I'm looking for is, are they giving credit both to themselves, but also to their team around them? So that will tell me how much of an, a, a player they are internally with politics, which is important if you want to succeed. And then I get the opportunity at the end to ask, well, tell me about a deal you lost. And what I'm looking to hear from them is what they would have done differently. What I don't, what is a deal killer for me on an interview for a question like that, for example, is if they blame everybody else. My executives didn't come through for me. The product sucked, this sucked, that sucked. And at the end of the day, they wouldn't have changed anything. 
that's not an AE I want to hire because that person isn't coachable. They don't learn from their mistakes. So questions especially, like- Especially if it's a track record. Like every time you say, why'd you leave company A and go to B? And why'd you leave B and go to C? And it's the same type of thing. Yeah. It was always about somebody else's fault or some else, you know, some other problem, but they never, it was never that anything that they did, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And I think mature people understand that they make mistakes and they they actually learn when they make mistakes. And that's what yeah. you want on your team. Yeah, what I found with first line managers is a lot of times when they first start recruiting, they want to they find somebody that they like. They find somebody that, oh, I could have a beer with this person, I could spend a week in a boat with them, you know, that type of thing. But it doesn't mean that they can actually sell just because you like them. Anybody can, a lot of people I found can be pretty likable in a 45 minute to an hour conversation. But that doesn't mean that they actually are, to your point, meet the profile for the company you're at and the stage you're at and the product you sell and who you sell to and the use case you sell to. Are they really a good fit for that versus being just likable? That's mm-hmm. yeah. in building all around, right? And master champion builders who are AEs are going to be able to, in the first line manager, build champions just like you do with your customer. That's a big plus, by the way. So something I look for, did they use my name during the the interview? Did they follow up with me on LinkedIn before? Did they comment? I actually have a picture of my family behind me by design and the good AEs and the good, even the good first line managers that I interview, they go, was that your family? Has, I don't really care about them asking for my family as much as I care if they would notice something like that on a call, because that's someone who is naturally going to build champions. And champion building is weird because I feel like we can talk about it and we can try to teach it, but some of it just has to be natural curiosity, as you say in, in your book, which by the way is right here and well-loved as you can see. <laughs> yes. lots, of, lots of dog ears on that in those pages. Yeah. Now, Tammy, how do you stop the second line manager, who's the first time second line manager, from going and asking the reps the same exact questions that the first line manager is asking them is when it comes into the forecast or the pipeline or any of those things? Well, that is a problem. Um, <laughs> there's, you know, I mean, think about that the is a problem. It is a problem. Think about the poor AE in that situation. They're like, okay, I updated my first line manager. I updated Salesforce. I put the update in the Slack channel. And now I have to tell you. And then when I get on with Tammy, is she going to ask me the same questions? How about Anshu, the CEO? Is he going to ask me the same questions? Um, And so just like, how do you prevent the first line manager from becoming super rep? The answer is like any training, right? You mentioned that this is going to be a problem. Then you call them on it the first couple of times it happens. So you're making sure that they're aware, like you pre, yeah, I pre-told you this, now I'm seeing this, right? In a, in a way by asking questions again, so like they can come to the conclusion like, oh, I probably should have went and read the notes or talked to the first line manager about what's going on in this deal beforehand. Um, so I just think if the answer to your question there, John, is more like, how do you coach people in an effective way that actually makes them change a behavior permanently because it was their idea to do so not because you're telling something, not because you're telling them to change it. Yeah. And a little bit of segregation of duties. Like like we talked about, you may not be as a second line manager responsible for who that first line manager recruits, but you definitely should play a huge part in, in training and coaching them on that. And there's other things that they should be training and coaching the first line manager on. Yeah. What's 
weird about being a second line manager and a third is like moving the needle. Like the higher up you get, you know, I see you're that I see you're like, yup, the yeah. harder it is to move the needle, right? So how do you effectively, how do you promote and change behavior when you've got dozens or sometimes like I think I had 70 in my org at Launch Starkly when I left? Like that's a lot of people to have in your org to try to influence. And so for me, it's like focusing on the little things that can make a big difference, like champion building, like finding pain. Um, and back to the basics, like Betty basic, I think you put it in your book and that is so important to get, get back. And as a second line manager, same thing. Yeah, I agree. It's what a lot of companies really don't, don't do is they don't do the fundamentals right. And there's no discipline around the fundamentals. So then when somebody else comes in like yourself, you know, it's not, it's not rocket science. It's going in and, you know, putting real fundamentals in place and having discipline around those fundamentals. I always believe like if the if my team can really pull off the fundamentals flawlessly, then I'm okay. I can't worry about like a, as in a basketball analogy, them taking three point shots. I got to, if they can do everything else, all the other fundamentals, right. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to win most of the games. I do believe that. I mean, I believe that, you know, a product is a product and there's a small amount of companies you're going to talk to where they're just not buying what you're selling. And so the key there is going to be qualify out, like just move on. And then there is a percentage of them that their use case is so in line with what you offer. They're going to buy, if you can have a rep that can fog a mirror, they'll sell that deal. And then there's the middle, right? And the middle is where the effective AEs push the line towards more sales than the ones who don't follow the process, the ones who don't respect the basics, right? It's about finding it, building a champion and finding pain and rubbing salt in the wound and making sure that your AEs are trained and have, I have a discovery call score sheet where we have all the questions listed that we want the AE to ask. One of the most important and one of the basic things that I focus on at LaunchDarkly and here at Skyflow is what other ways are you are you looking at to solve this problem? It's kind of the same question as what competitors are you looking at, but it's a little less offensive to customers. Um, so, th so things like making sure they've got those questions, um, champion building, I have a champion building score sheet, right? So it talks about influence and authority and how do you know that your champion has influence? And a lot of times, as you know, John, the AEs are calling people champions that are not champ. That, that, right. <laughs> that number is, one mistake. That, yeah. Yeah. That term is just not being. And so it's like, oh, so they go, I, I, okay, you think your champion's a champion, go fill up the champion score sheet. Well, they think that the champion's a champion because they requested the inbound lead, like yeah. the inbound demo, the inbound demo request came from John McMahon. So John McMahon's my champion. That doesn't make John a champion. John went out and found four companies just like us and requested demos for all four of them. What does John say when we're not in the room about our product? What is John's personal win? If John buys Skyflow and it makes you know, him a hero, what happens? So it's, it's things like that. Um, and I just keep, again, getting back to the basics. I had, speaking of like influencing change at very high levels, this is going to say, it's a stupid story, but it's a fun story. Actually, when I was at Launch Starkly, it was two months before Mother's Day. And I noticed a lot of AEs weren't building champions to the, to the point I wanted them to. And the point I was trying to make when I did the training is there's the basics, like using their name and 
like noticing their family. And the reason these things are important is it kind of gives you a license to move to the next level, which are things like asking them, hey, I don't think you're going to buy Skyflow and letting them tell you why they're going to buy Skyflow. Because if if they have to hesitate with that question, you have a lot of work to do to build a champion all the way up to, you know, can you bring me to your EB? Can I help you put together the presentation that's going to go to your CFO? That's going to ask for a couple hundred grand or whatever it might be. Um, and the name of the contest that I came up with is what's your dog's name? And it was a line for like, are you starting with the basics, getting them comfortable with you so that you can go to the next level, getting them comfortable with Skyflow. And then so you can go to the next level, which is really championing, uh, testing their champion building skills. And the way the, the contest worked was the rep had to write on a post-it note, what's your dog's name? And it was, and we put all these trackers in gong. It was, what's your dog's name? What's your cat's name? What you doing this weekend? What's your wife's name? Your whatever. There's like 30 of them. And then they had to put it on their laptop and take a picture of it. And the reason I wanted that is I wanted there to be a cue, something that was going to trigger that they wanted to change a behavior. Because I think a lot of times with training, you tell reps build champions and then they you may have a quiz. Are, are you doing all these things? And like they're checking all these boxes. But when they actually get in front of a customer, I don't think they're thinking about it. It's like a habit. So like they forget. Um, and so they had to take a picture of what's your dog's name. And then they had to be found on the tracker uh, in Gong saying, what's your dog's name? What's your cat's name? Whatever of the trigger. And they got a bouquet delivered to their mother for Mother's Day oh, on, wow. on Launch Darkly. It was the cheap. You know what? The bouquets cost like 60 bucks. And yeah. the tracker in Gong from like February to March to April went from like three mentions to 23 to 586. The, wow. the the, yeah, the SEs were mentioning what's your dog's name. And as like, trivial as that might sound, I literally got a text maybe a week or two ago from a gal by the name of Morgan Freeze that used to be at Launch Darkly. And she said, I was just on the phone with a customer and his dog went by his back because everyone works from home nowadays. And she goes, I asked, what's your dog's name? And I couldn't help but to smile and think of you. And I went, that's awesome. What did the customer say? And she goes, he went and picked up his dog and sat the dog on his lap and told me all about his dog. And now I remember the dog's name and it's how I start every call. And like he is now sharing information with her because he's got that level of comfort that brought it to the next level. And now she can say, why would you buy? And he would be able to defend it. So, long story, but it, that's like an example of even as a second line manager, how do you move the needle at that level when you have so many people? And it, I think it's little things like that. Yeah. What's your dog's name, Tammy? <laughs> My dog's name is Brutus Beefcake, John. Brutus Beefcake? Okay, Brutus so let me guess. Is it a bulldog? What is it? It's a Rottweiler. The Rottweiler. And, Pretty and close. That's name? where I was going next. And what's your dog's name, John? Tipsy. Tipsy? All yeah. right. My I'm son gave it to me. I'm going to write that in my John McMahon yeah. contact card. So yeah. when I see you at the Boston airport, I go, hey, John, how's Tipsy? It's half Border Collie and half Trouble. Oh, no. Oh, no, because oh, those Border Collies are smart. And this one is mixed with something else. It knows how to find trouble. So yeah. <laughs> sounds like you have some fun with your dog. Yeah. Fun getting now, Let's go from, uh, we're going to go from second line manager to third line or in some cases CRO or which one you want to pick? Well, second line to CRO is what my personal journey was. So yeah, it's okay. Let's do what's the biggest lesson there. Now you're a you're a person on an island. There you are. You wanted it. 
You wanted the title, you wanted the responsibility. Now you got it. Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Take a breath. Yeah. Now fun begins. I say that every time, but um, for me, it was like managing different groups of people that I didn't have their job in the past. So yeah. like C's and um, like operations and um, like partners. I have the glad I just hired a global head of partnerships and she worked with me 20 years ago at EMC, Courtney Redding, put her in the role, but you know, I've actually never been a partner person. So like understanding what makes them tick, understand hiring good, good leaders and understanding that good leaders will bring you problems in their org and want to talk through what to do about it. Mm. Right. There's a lot of yes people out there. I don't appreciate yes people. They always, they're, they're really good at taking suggestions from you, but they're not good at bringing you problems. So like the SE manager I have in place, um, it's just, it's been, it's been interesting to, to for me to manage the SE org and the, not so much the SDR org, because at least that's a job that's pretty basic and I understand it, but the SEs and it's been, uh, it's been fun. Is that the biggest lesson that you had to learn, you know, moving to CRO? That and it's managing these other, you know, disciplines that you've never managed before. Do you have post sales also? No, not yet. Yeah, our post sales. Yeah, you You'll get it. Yeah, our post sales still has some engineering involvement in about 90% of the cases because the product is so complex. So it stays close to engineering for that reason. Yeah. Well, what happens now a lot of times in post sales is, um, a lot of companies still have a break fix mentality. Like they wait till something breaks and then they, they you know, it goes to development and they fix it. But yeah. in, in the subscription world and definitely in the consumption world, because you have to get customers to burn down credits, you need a post sales organization. That's more of like a concierge organization where they, they're way ahead of where they know exactly what the customers use and what functions they're using, when they're using it, how many people are using it. And you got to be really on top of that. Well, you, you're you going to get that responsibility soon too. So yeah, I'll congratulate yeah. you then also. Oh, thanks. Yeah. It's been, uh, you know, again, our customer support, we call them customer implementation, uh, customer experience program managers, what we call them. And they work very closely with AEs uh, as well. So I think as the product gets a little more detached from engineering, it'll move over to, to revenue. But at this point, ev almost every implementation requires some custom connection or something that has to be built. So you mentioned a lot of lessons that you climbed the ladder, but is there something that's now ingrained in Tammy Sexton's DNA, the leader, that when you were coming up the ranks, you thought, oh, that's kind of important, but I don't understand why everybody makes such a big fuss out of it all the time. And now you're there and you realize, oh, that's, I got to have that. That's in my DNA. I have changed as it pertains to dealing with, how do I say it? Like dealing with everybody internally. Like I used to think as an AE and even as a first and second line manager, your job was to you know build champions, find pain, enable others, scale the organization. Um, but what has become very, uh, what I become very aware of is the champions you make, just like you think that the best way to get a customer influence decision criteria is to ask a bunch of questions. So the customers come up with decision criteria that is actually conducive to whatever you're selling. So you can implant some of them um, right. internally, like 
for me, dealing with engineering, dealing with product, dealing with finance, right? So now I have CAC payback that they have to, I haven't been measured on CAC payback before. So what is that? And can I get the CFO to help me understand how it's measured? Um, and so internal relationships and internal politics are just as important at this level as being, as understanding the basics like sales process and finding champions and uh, finding pain and building champions. So I think it's that internal piece why is it important for me to have a really good relationship with our, our chief engineering officer and our chief privacy officer? Because it is. And if I truly want to get things done for my organization, I have to understand how to make sure that internally that we work well with all the other organizations at Skyflow. That's so powerful that you, you say that. And I'm going to give you a little different way of saying it. And I stole it from Brian Halligan, who's, who's CEO of uh, HubSpot for 16 years. He had he was on the podcast. And he said that there's three different types of value that people bring to a company or don't bring, right? There's me value, where they only think about themselves. There's team value, where let's say you're the sales VP, but you only think about sales and you don't think about anything else outside of sales. And then there's enterprise value. And those are the types of people that Brian wants on his team. People that can think not just of how something's going to affect themselves or affect the team, but really first how it's going to affect the enterprise. Because those are the most valuable people in the company. Yeah, I loved how he broke it down. You, you said the same exact thing. I'm just kind of giving you a different way of saying it. So, no, but it, but it is true. Yeah, powerful. And you want to have AEs that care about the customer experience program managers. And if I close this deal and there's, you know, a, a tremendous amount of work that we have to do as a company in order to give a Skyflow vault to this customer, how does that affect my relationship with the customer experience team? And in order for me not to tarnish my relationship with them, I need to bring them in this deal and get them saying, yes, we should do that deal. Right. Because if I if I just do it and then I say, here you go, what happens to the next customer and the next customer that I want to do business with in that way? So make it their idea to move forward with the deal. And then they're going to want the customer to succeed. And that's much better for your customer and you and the company. Yeah. And, you know, you can look around the company and look around your own team and know who is me or team or enterprise. It's pretty just easy to see pretty quickly. Right. I just now, had a conversation with an AE. Oh, you did about the same type of topic. Yep. Yeah. How'd that, how'd, that, how'd that go? Something went wrong with one of the implementations and one of our people went on vacation before doing something they said they were going to do. Um, and this account executive called and complained instead of calling and calling the manager and saying, hey, so-and-so is supposed to do this. Do you have any suggestions for me? Like, What would you like me to do here? And making it that customer experience manager's problem that this didn't get done, as opposed to calling and complaining Um and ultimately, what the AE said is like, I'm doing what's best for my customer, which I think he thought he really was, but he could. So that my, my, my thought back to him is, how do you get the same thing achieved without tarnishing your relationship? Is there a question you can ask the customer experience team instead of barking out, why didn't you get this done? Um, so, and, and it took a little bit of time, but now the AEs come back and he's like, you know, you're right. So like next time they have a situation the same thing comes up, maybe the AE will think a little more carefully about how can I get what I want without pissing people off, essentially, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I'm sure they will if they, they had a discussion with you. So yeah. hey, 
Tammy, of all these things, what did you have to learn about Tammy, like coming up through the ranks? What's the biggest thing when you look back and say, man, I had to learn, I had to learn this about myself. And then maybe I changed it. Is there anything you can think of? I can think of a lot of things. Um, (laughs) We don't have that long, John. We only blocked off an hour and a half. I only only asked for one. I only asked for one. I think the biggest thing I had to learn about me was how to effectively lead in a way that everybody in the, everybody in the org has a different way, for example, of training. Everybody has a different superpower. And so, and the higher you get, the harder, not the harder it is, but the more you have to appreciate differences in people, you have to train people differently. You have to understand what motivates them, what makes them tick. Um, and, and, and basically, like I said, just how to move the needle at this level. And people think it's easy, but the, the littlest things like communication is really hard. Making sure that you're communicating in a way where people are understanding and listening. Like it's, it's the, the basics just were a lot harder than I thought they were going to be. And then the other piece, of course, you asked for just one was the politics piece, how important internal politics are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can get so you can get so busy as a CRO and everybody wants a piece of you inside the company. And then it's the last two weeks of the quarter and you're pr- pressured to make the number. And you're, you know, you may be getting a little stressed and a little anxiety and all those types of things. And sometimes it's, you know, you could be a little short with people because, you know, you got 10 other things on your mind. So it's being able to resist that and be a little more patient, you know, with people. Um, you know, as they come to you for things, right? Yeah, John, I don't know if it was like this for you. I'd love to hear your perspective as well. But like, sometimes I feel like my calendar is so booked up that I'm constantly writing down things I want to do, but I actually never have time to do the things I wrote down on the on the notepad. So like, I have been able to kind of strategically take blocks of time. And I will say, this is what I'm getting done in this block of time. And if I literally don't do that, I end up every day at the end of the day with a long list of things to do that never get done. Like, how do you do that when you were, you were five times CRO? Like, how do you? Same time. You have to block stuff off because I remember one time I had to ask my uh, executive assistant, I had to say, now, just so I understand, do I go to the bathroom between 11.59 and 12.00? Because when I look at my calendar, there is no, not even a second for me to take a break. Yep. And then, you know, I can't blame her because I got myself into that situation. So I had to, you know, block off some John time. You have to block off Tammy time where you can do things that are more proactive and you can get can digest things and think about now, where am I? You know, what do I need to do? What two or three things am I going to do today or this week that are going to move the, move the ball forward, right? Instead of just running around with a lot of activity, but I'm not accomplishing anything, you know? So it's really easy in these jobs to confuse, when you get busy to confuse activity with accomplishment. Just because you work 16 hour days doesn't mean that you actually accomplished anything. Yep. So I actually found myself driving home at night and asking myself, okay, you worked many, many hours. What did you really accomplish today? How did you help the team? How did you move help the company? What did you do? And if I found that I didn't do anything, I was a little mad at myself and would, you know, prepare and come in the next day and make sure that I could, you know, have an impact. I think you're doing it the right way by blocking off time for yourself. 
That's an awesome way to think, though, at the end of the day, before you go to your house. You know, mm. I don't have the privilege of a drive home anymore as I work from home. Uh, but I, I like the idea of taking a moment at the end of the day to think think about what I did today that moved the needle. Right. When you close that laptop, you can sit there in your office for another five or 10 minutes and ask yourself, well, what did I really accomplish? How did I really help my team? How, how did I? The biggest question is, how did I increase the productivity of my sales force? Am I, did I implement something for training? Did I run some interference with them? Did I shorten a process? You know, what did I do? Yeah. Because as yeah. you know, the number one metric for, you know, any CRO is sales productivity. You know, when sales productivity goes up, everything looks great on the financial statement. When sales productivity goes down, there's going to be some negative things on that financial statement. Yep. Yeah. And there's so many little things you can do. So prioritizing those and then making time to do them no matter what, instead of having at the end of the day, a long list of things to do that never get done. Yeah. Now, when you, I think this is close to your third time as being like VP of worldwide sales or CRO. So when you walk in the door as a new CRO of a company, typically there's going to be like three to five things that you're going to want to learn about immediately. Like what are some of those things? Can you go back to when you were thinking about walking into Skyflow or any of these others in general? Like what are the three to five things I want to learn right away? Well, I think the first one is always the quality of the leadership team. Like, do I have the right leaders in place? Okay. Um, yeah. And, and that, and that's again with SE leadership, SDR leadership is with operations, partners, the direct sales organization, et cetera. So how do I, how do I assess the quality of the leadership? Um, I think the second thing is the next level from that there, the quality, like getting each leader to do like a SWOT analysis on their people, their strengths, their weaknesses. Um, I think a lot of people hire fast and fire slow when you really want to do it the opposite. So when you have someone, for example, that just isn't performing and just hasn't for a very long time, and you've come to the conclusion, like the coaching isn't going to help that person, they should move on. Um, and then after the quality of the leadership, the quality of the team under the leadership, being that the first line levels, uh, first line managers and the uh, ICs or across the org, I think this next thing then is, you know, it's just following the basic sales process. Does this organization, does Skyflow understand and do we all as an executive team agree on our differentiators? And do we have, we created a list of questions, trap setting questions, if John Kaplan was here, um, that the AE should be asking to lay the basics of finding the pain. So I did that when I got here to Skyflow is that workshop. And it was crazy because I scheduled a two-hour workshop with all the execs so that we could define competitively what makes us different or better, what are our value differentiators, and what questions do we want the AEs to ask that can, and and we literally argued about it for six weeks. Like, if we don't know our own value as an organization and we don't know our value differentiators, how in the world would our AEs ever know what makes us different? We don't right. even know. So powerful. Six weeks, right? I mean, yeah. that's not uncommon for a new CRO to go in and find out that, you know, there's there's a reason why they weren't selling so much and they could sell a lot. I remember going into one place and they said, let's let's go over how many use cases we have to sell to. And they had listed 13 use cases. And I said, this is not going to work for me. And I had, and they said, why not? And I said, if you think I could sell to 13 use cases and you think, and I looked at marketing part, you think you can market to 13 use cases? I looked at development parts. You think you can develop the 13 use cases and be world-class in all of them? 
you get the, I don't think you can do it. I need yep. to go home. Well, what do we need to do? Yep. <laughs> we need to find three to four that really fit what, what we're capable of in our differentiators, to your point. So, so yeah. powerful. You see that a lot. And how do you enable people on 13 different use cases? I have no idea, Tammy. I have no, <laughs> I can't do it. I can't. <laughs> need somebody else. Yeah, exactly. So, and then are there some common things that startups are doing incorrectly that you think, you know, they need to change, right? I mean, we talked about some, a couple issues, but are there certain things in the sales process or not training reps or, or recruiting the wrong way? Are there any of those things that you think in general, most startups do incorrectly? I think the thing they do incorrectly is founders think that features sell products. And so they get on the phone with a new prospect and they think their job is to open up a PowerPoint and go for 30 minutes on their product. And of course, it's so wonderful. It's just going to sell itself. So getting them to ask those trap setting questions and getting them to take a moment to let the customer talk about why they, you know, why they inbounded and what their problems are and what are solutions are you looking at to solve these problems? Um, I think that a lot of times smaller startups, like if you look at series A, series B, somewhat series C, the founders sometimes are still the CEOs. And when that's the, and you're, you're nodding because yes, that is so co common, right? Yeah. So when that's happening, you need to bring in a strong CRO or a VP of sales that is going to push back a little bit and not be afraid to push back. It takes a long time to get the confidence that you need to just not agree with your boss on everything. But your job is to not agree on everything, but to bring the expertise that you've developed over the past 25 years and to, to apply it to Skyflow. So I think a lot of a lot of startups make the decision, make the incorrect assumption that features sell products, the product will sell itself if you talk about it enough and don't and don't focus on the basics. Yeah, but the, you brought up another really in, in there, you brought up another real powerful point, which is the new CRO a lot of times feels like they're subordinate to the CEO. And I think what they, I've had many conversations with people that are CROs and had to push them really hard to say, look, you have an opinion. You're in charge of all the revenue. You're in charge of the sales force. You're a member of the executive team. You need, and the CEO actually expects you to give them your honest opinion on what's right or what's wrong. Now, they're the CEO, so they get to make the final decision. But at the end of the day, if you're not really telling them everything in the way you feel about what's going on, you're doing yourself a disservice and the CEO a disservice. But to your point, a lot of brand new CROs, it takes them a long time to get the courage to actually just say what's on their mind. I think you gave me the courage one day, John. Didn't I text you? And I'm like, this is what's going on. What would you say? And you called me and you're like, no, you're right. Don't be afraid that this is this is your... I think you're dealing with this the right way. And I was so relieved when I finally brought up to Anshu and I forgot even what the issue was anymore, but. I actually uh, think I almost got mad at you. I tried to get mad at you so that you would, you felt like some pain over here. Now I actually have to go do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, uh, it, it was really good advice. And, you know, now I've got leaders that have managers and, and some of them seem like yes people. And those are the first ones that I don't need on my team, especially when they're managing a group of people that I haven't like SEs and like SDRs, if you can't come to 
If, if you disagree with me because of your expertise, this is why I pay you. I want to hear why. And Anshu did too, by the way. So thank you for the courage. And I also think that a new CRO definitely needs a mentor or somebody outside of the organization who has been a CRO before that they ultimately trust. Like if this person tells me I'm on the right track, it's like, it's like additional validation that can give you the confidence that you need to do the job you were hired to do to begin with. Yeah. It's the confidence. It's a growing experience when you finally have the conversation. I think it's a big relief. You probably were relieved. Okay. I had the conversation. He, he accepted it. Now we're on the same page. I really am a partner in this business and now I can move forward, you yeah. know, without yeah. any anxiety, extra anxiety. I don't need any more as a CRO. <laughs> yes. Well, just the validation that the approach I was thinking about was, was not crazy. Like my boss was saying it was crazy. And you're like, no, you're not crazy. That confidence was what gave me the, the confidence to push back. Yeah. Hey, we had, let's switch gears a little bit to like metrics or KPIs. We had Mark Roberge on, who was the original CRO at HubSpot, really smart guy. And he said, you know, at HubSpot, they used to say, in God, we trust everyone else bring data. I love that line. And he said that really in reference to using data to make decisions without, you know, lots of emotion in it. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the key metrics or KPIs that you utilize as CRO? Yeah, so... Oh, there's a lot of them. There are the ones that are so obvious, like pipeline generated, um, act, you know, media activity. I'm not, I'm not as focused on activity for AEs. If you have a, um, you've got your 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 forecast for this quarter, and it's looking like you're going to make your number. Like you've got either deals that have closed already or deals that I can, the progress is happening on, um, and you are also generating an adequate amount of pipeline to make sure in. 90 days next quarter, you're going to be in the same spot to close enough business. I don't look as heavily on activity on those AEs. However, what I will always look at is for activity activity for AEs that are not like producing enough pipeline. So if I can sit down with an AE and say, here's your peer or a manager, hey, here's your group and here's the group that manages the Eastern US or whatever. You have six reps, this person has six reps. Here's what they've done, here's what your team has done. And then you just stop talking and let the person kind of digest the data. Um, so it's so much more powerful as I think the theme of this has been to ask questions and let people come to the conclusion that they want to change something than to just tell them to change it. Because if you just tell them to change it, it can be done in 30 seconds, but they actually won't change anything. So you're still wasting, there's 30 seconds of your time you won't get back just by saying it. Um, and then, you know, as it pertains to some of the other, other groups, like the SEs, right? How many technical wins? And so something that we do on our calls every Monday is we open with statistics and we open with all this data. So for the SDRs, how many appointments did you set inbound? How many appointments did you set outbound? How many new accounts did you touch? What was your open rate? Because you're op So sometimes it's like, oh, you can congratulate an SDR that sent out 500 emails. Why would you want to do that if they only had a 0.05% open rate when you had another SDR that sent out 50 emails that were very, very personalized and had a 25% open rate? That open rate means a lot, right? So it's not just about the data. It's not just about necessarily the numbers at the top, but the conversion numbers, the SE conversion from PO, POV to win. 
um, the AE conversion at each stage. So if I can sit down with a manager that has six AEs and help that manager with data that says, this AE always gets stuck at this part of the sales cycle. Why do they have a 20% POV win rate and technical win rate when all the other AEs have a 60, 60% chance of moving to the next stage? So everything from stage advancement to pipeline, to activity, to SEs on the technical win, to um, SDRs on the conversion, for example. So it depends upon what group, but I'm a data fanatic and I use all kinds of tools that helps bring data to the the forefront because I love it. Mm. The part that you mentioned, Don, where a rep gets stuck in a certain part of the sales process, I always looked at that for, for all of the reps because it told me where they need training, you know? They need uh, either a knowledge boost or some sort of skill set to get them past that that part of the process. Yeah, it's so so critical, and I think a lot of people are focused on a lot of other metrics, but they're not really focused on you know where are my reps really getting stuck? What step or what stage of the process are they getting stuck in? And what can I do as the CRO to truly influence you know the sales process, you know, yep. for my reps? And that's training, right? So important. It's so hard. Yeah. You know, when- so now that you, um, you know, have perspective as a CRO, what's changed about your perspective on the sales process? Has anything changed about the way in which you look at the sales process? Like it probably when you're an AE, maybe you're out there speaking about features and functions and doing demos and POCs, but maybe now as a CRO, you're thinking, that's not getting it done anymore. I need to do, you know, my, my people need to do things differently. I think it's, well, for me, it's not necessarily changed as I become a CRO, but I think as you move up the ranks, you get more in tune with the champion building and finding pain. And like for an AE, for example, and an SE that can fill out a champion card and then come away with, you know what, I need to do these three things. I'm going to try to, you know, get the, I'm going to ask my champion to bring me to the EB and I'm going to do, you know, ask my, I'm going to tell my champion, he's not going to buy Skyflow, see what he says. Right. Um, so I think it's, it really gets back to the basics for me on all that stuff, but all of the things that I think when I was a rep, I just really despise training. I mean, I didn't despise it, but like, you're like, oh, whatever, I didn't really need this. So like the biggest thing that's changed about me moving into a role like this is for any training program to be effective, you have to start by making people understand that they need the training. So like, don't skip that part. Don't just start the training. Understand with, start with the why. And if everybody in the room, I'm, I'm actually doing the, what's your dog's name at Launch Darkly or at Skyflow in um, in February, we're kicking off a what's your dog's name spiff. Um, and the, the thing I'm doing right now, and it's very time consuming, is going through every single gong call and I'm finding opportunities where AEs could have done different things with my managers And to prove, like, the first thing I want to prove to all of you is that you need to pay attention during this training. If I can't get that, if I can't establish that with people, the training is irrelevant. So how do you make sure they're paying attention? Um, I'm literally going through every gong call. And when a customer, like I just went through one this morning, customer AE gets on, they're waiting for the rest of the people to show up on the call. The AE goes, so what'd you do last weekend? And the customer says, I went golfing. And instead of the AE going, oh, where'd you go? How was it? You know, how was the weather? How was What was your best hole? The AE goes, wow, you know what? I'm going to go golfing too. And they went on and on and on. Oh boy. On. Yeah. yeah. 
and and before you know it, everybody's on the call and that AE missed out. People like to talk about themselves. So like engaging. So I'm finding literally examples of every single AE and I'm going to play it to start. Like yeah. I'm going to play example of every person in the room who had an opportunity to, to reflect, turn that back around to your customer that didn't do it. And then I'm going to say, anybody in the room who thinks that they've got this mastered, raise your hand and watch them all as they watch themselves not do this. Right. What do you think is the most, you keep talking about champions, so maybe that's the part of the a step or the stage in the sales process. What do you think is the most critical step in the or stage in the sales process? Critical stage in the sales process, I think, is getting in front of the EB before you do a POV. So getting to the... and <laughs> Now, what percentage of the POVs do people get in front of the EB? I am embarrassed to say probably only half here. So not what I not want. Good. Not good. Okay. And then of that half, how many of those deals, how many of those actually turn into deals? Oh, like 90%. If you get to EB. No, if you get to the EB, what if you don't get to the EB and you do the POV? It's like 10%. It's really yeah. bad. Like Total waste of time. Total yep. waste. Total waste of time. What's the number one reason why they don't get to the EB? Usually it's a low level inbound lead request that they have not been able to turn into a real champion. There may be a coach at best. Right. Um, and, and a lot of times it's just, well, sometimes it's just literally lack of asking. Like, you know, you want the AEs have to feel comfortable asking their, their champion. They're, they call them champions, but they're really not to bring them to the economic buyer. Right. So sometimes a med That's pick. That's why I used to love the question. Like somebody stand up and give a forecast and, I say, yeah, you know, I'd say, okay, so I, I have a champion. I go, great. You know, how long have you been calling on the account? Eight months. Great. How long have you had the champion? Oh, I've known the champion for six months. Have you met the EB? No. Then I would say, you don't have a champion. <laughs> you don't have a champion. <laughs> Give it up. Like you, it's not yeah. happening. You don't have a champion. You have something else, a coach, a nice friend, you know, a nice yeah. neighbor, but you don't have a champion. Yeah. Right. And even and just because you like know their dog's name, that doesn't make them a champion. <laughs> but doing things like I didn't know that. Giving, I know it sounds okay. It's it's kind of obvious. And I actually had an SE tell me once at a previous role um that SE shouldn't be expected to build champions. Like Why not? I said, well, my job is really about the technology. Like, I don't have to build a champion. I don't have to do that. I shouldn't be expected to do that. I shouldn't be expected to take. If you're not naturally curious about other people, like truly, John's dog's name is Tipsy. I'm not going to forget that. But if that's something that isn't interesting to you and you're in a pre-sales role of any type, then you probably should find a better career. Because like this job requires people that are naturally curious in other people to give them comfort to actually build a champion because it starts with that basic comfort. Then it moves on to watching what they're doing. Then it moves on to testing your champion, like bringing them to the EB or let me help you with the presentation that's going to your CFO to ask for the money, giving them the presentation that you showed EB before the POV economic buyer before the uh, uh, proof of value. And then embellishing that presentation and then making them own it. Like you are, they, you've given them a presentation. Now they become the author of the presentation. The EB becomes the author of the presentation. So if they do have to go to like a CFO, they've got a very easy 
flow that explains the needs, by the way, half of which you created as a need, explains the product, has nice shots of the product checking off whatever technical box. Hopefully it's one that you planted in there. That's something that only Skyflow does, for example. So the CFO goes, wow, I can see why we need this product. Like, here's your check, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I had something I was going to comment on and I kind of forgot it because I was, I was deep in your story there. <laughs> no, but the, yes, oh, I, I know what it was, but the, as you know, in m many sales situations, especially when you're selling a big deal, there's the business champion and then there's the technical champion. I found like it's the sales rep's job to find out who the technical champion could be, but it's the SE's job to, to help build that person into a technical champion and see AE's job, you know, to go make sure that they have a business champion because that's the person that's going to go to the EB. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, you asked about mistakes that young companies make. Another mistake, of course, is letting that, like the, the when I got here, our trial process, which was not called the POV, it was called the trial, um, was just give them access to Skyflow and then start a Slack channel and just let me know if there's anything that you have questions on. Like, wow. <laughs> I know, right? And so I'm like, oh, that's not going to work. That's <laughs> why they needed you. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And so to be prescriptive in that and give the SEs. So I actually had an SE push back on a customer. I forgot what it was. It was a deal that I first started and, and I didn't have a second line yet. I was still dealing with the first line and the AE sends a Slack or something to me in the SE. So-and-so has a question they want you to get on a call. And the SE responded by saying, can they just put it in Slack? I'm like, are you kidding? You actually passed up an opportunity to talk to your customer. Crazy. 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 Yeah. Now, why do you think most sales campaigns fail? Maybe this is a rhetorical question based upon some of the things you said, but why do most sales campaigns fail? I do think it's because the 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 AE either failed to or for whatever reason was unable to sway the decision criteria to include things like for Skyflow, we have a patent on something called polymorphic encryption. And if I can get a customer to say, Part of my technical requirements is polymorphic encryption. I am the only vendor that can win that, that, that can satisfy those technical requirements. So I think it's about the decision criteria, influence and decision criteria. And the way to do that is only through metrics and pain and champions. Because the more you know about your customer and the more you know about what happens behind closed doors, the more you can push the odds towards. And I think when I see A players, that's what they're doing that's right. Like they really have control over the discovery call. They have control over the process. They're very good at parroting back to the customer what the customer just said. And they're very good at doing that very fine tuning of the decision criteria to have polymorphic encryption. And the, by, the, by the time they're done with that sales campaign, the customer walked in the door and had a very strict um, requirement for polymorphic encryption. The only thing is they didn't know it. Mm-hmm. And where does all that start? Which step of the sales process is the most critical to making sure that you're starting to form a decision criteria and trying to find a champion? Where is that? Well, I think it all starts with a proper discovery call. So, yeah. and I think you'll agree there. I mean, hundred percent. Yeah, the most important part, right? But then that actually continues. So when you go from that discovery call and now the the demo, for example, right? The AE should open by here's what, you know, here's what your situation is. Here's what I heard from you. 
this is what you need to get to. Is that right? And I encourage my AEs to do that in an, an, in a PowerPoint edit mode. Like, is this your pain? Did I capture that the right way? And then if they didn't during the discovery call, it'd be like, hey, what's the impact to your business if I could give you the ability to do polymorphic encryption? Really that much? Mm. Um, so I think it starts with the discovery call and discovery call is probably 60%, maybe 70%. And then through the whole process, fine tuning that pain slide for your customer. So at the end, you can give it to them and it becomes their pain slide with their requirements, all of which were your requirements, but they didn't know that. Strong, strong. So when you think about failed campaigns, do you think the competition won because of their execution of the process or because your account executive failed to execute the process? Um, Various different things. I definitely think there are opportunities that are closed last year at LaunchDarkly everywhere where the AE failed to execute on the sales process and that the competitors AE also failed to execute on this on the sales process. But what I've noticed, and I have a unique perspective on this because I'm from Skyflow, mm -hmm. we've got traditional competitors that have a very, I, I'm not going to say it like this, but I am a very non- John McMahon sales process. Like these companies, I can tell you, they've been around forever. They don't understand a true sales process the way we got taught at PTC, right? Um, and then there's these newer companies that we're up against that have kind of a next generation product like we do. And in those companies, I've learned there are a couple of them that their AEs seem to be very good on the sales process. And I need, th those are the ones that will use the sales process to their advantage. So it, de it depends is the answer, but there's definitely times where the, co the competition just outsold us. Yeah. We're almost running out of time. So last question, what's the, what do you think is the best way for AEs to create urgency with the customer? Is, have you found that, like there's a certain thing that they should be doing to create urgency? Uh, for me, it's always metrics. Like, what, what is the cost of not doing anything? Tell me what you're doing today. What other solutions are you looking at to solve the problem? How much is that costing you? Um, if you have a, a genuine metric, which just like champions in MedPick, metric is also one where AEs, they say, yeah, yeah. They agree that Skyflow is better. Do you think that's a metric? Tell me your metric again, right? So the to me, um, the best way to create urgency is to have it be your customer's idea to have it be an urgent manner, not yours. And I've seen a lot of discounting and deadlines and all that stuff. And at the end of the day, I'm not a big fan of doing that. If for whatever reason, the AE is not able to create urgency just by having an effective metric and they have to resort to something like that, I'm very firmly in the camp of do not ever offer it unless your customer has said that they could take advantage of it. Because if you offer it and they can't, they expect you to hold that. And if you end up not holding that discount or whatever you might be doing, then it, it leaves a bad taste in their mouth. But if they ask you to do it and you honor it a quarter after, for example, it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Tonight, in fact, I've got a call with a customer uh, where you know they're, they, they have no sense of urgency. So we're trying to create that sense of urgency, but I'm not going to give any type of discount until they tell me for sure that they would be able to take advantage of it if it's, if it's enough. Yeah. Otherwise, just start on bad terms. That's but a bad to your thing. point. To be really clear, what you're saying again is the most important part of the process is discovery. And if you can find a pain metric or big pain that where the customer is bought into that pain metric, then in that case, you have something where you can create urgency. If you're just creating urgency because of 
polymorphic. What is that polymorphic? What? It, it, polymorphic encryption. It's polymorphic the encryption. I'm going to be able to say that by the end of yeah. this podcast. Technical, John. Or because, you know, you gave them a big discount. That's not getting it done. It has to be, be because they believe that they're going to get value from what they're buying, especially in today's economic conditions where people are trying to cut costs and they're scrutinizing every purchase. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing better than good discovery and good pain and good influence on decision criteria. And at the end of the day, the metric will drive the urgency if you did it right. If you did it right. Goes back to the basics, John. It is the basics, Tammy. <laughs> great to see you and great to have you. Great to see you too. Yeah. Great. Thanks for doing it. You did you think you did a fantastic job. This was really fun. I was just want to close by saying I was so honored to get your text. Will you go on revenue billers? I was like, ooh, I've been listening to the podcast for a long time now, and he's never asked me. And I'm like, here's my chance. <laughs> takes time, takes a little time. Be patient. I but it's great. You did a great job. Thank you so much, Tammy Sexton. Yes. Thanks, John. And thanks to everyone for listening to another episode of the Revenue Builders Podcast. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com. 